difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with my absolute bestest friends in the entire world. Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. God, aren't they so cute? They're (laughs) totally fetch. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two stories about women in power challenged by fresh young outsiders who walk into their fiefdoms and are like totally nice to them to their faces, but act like super frenemies behind their backs. In one case, the future of England is on the line. In another case, the stakes are who's sitting next to who in the high school lunchroom in Evanston, Illinois. But they're still both high tension social competition movies about underhanded schemes and social undermining. Genevieve. Yes. I totally love that top. Where'd you get it? Oh, uh, it's my boyfriend's. I picked it up off the top of the clean laundry pile this morning. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, it looks just great on you. It's too bad our listeners can't see you right now. Oh, thank you. God, now if you could stop being so conceited about your clothes for just five minutes. God, maybe you could tell our listeners what we're doing this week. Fine. (laughs) Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos made two movies in his home country before his international breakout, 2009's Dogtooth. And none of his films since then, including The Lobster and the Killing of a Sacred Deer, have looked anything like it. That also goes for his new movie, The Favorite, a historical drama about courtiers competing for the attention and approval of Queen Anne Stewart in the early 1700s. Anne's favorite, Sarah, is played by Rachel Weisz as a snappish, bossy tyrant. But when her cousin Abigail, played by Emma Stone, arrives at the palace, she woos Queen Anne with everything from flattery to cures for gout, and in the face of her schemes, Sarah struggles to keep her position. Weiss has called the film a high-stakes mean girls, referring to the 2004 Mark Waters film about high school girls faking friendships with each other while jockeying for social dominance. The film also features an entrenched queen bee, Regina, and an upstart outsider, Katie, who fakes deference to her while plotting to undermine her. They're both films about backbiting and power gaming, and how women approach power struggles differently from men, and about the urge to build yourself up while tearing someone else down. Oh my gosh, you did such a great job with that. Oh, thanks so much. This week, we'll look at how The Favorite and Mean Girls similarly address shifting sympathies and social competition among groups of women in two very different charged environments. And we'll look at how both films use humor and a bit of wish fulfillment to let the audience enjoy some really unpleasant behavior and a lot of open cruelty. And finally, for once, we'll get to talk about how these films use their barely-there male characters as prizes and obstacles without treating them much like people. That's all coming up after this on The Next Picture Show. Boo, you whore. Slut. (laughs) We have a new student with us. She just moved here from Africa. Welcome. I'm from Michigan. Great. I'm 16. Until today, I was homeschooled. And then it was goodbye, Africa. And hello, high school. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm Janice. This is Damien. Watch out! New meat coming through! This map shows the school's central nervous system. The cafeteria. You got your cool Asians, burnouts, jocks, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst. So you've never been to a real school before? Shut up. Shut up! I didn't say anything. Plastics. Who are the plastics? 
They're teen royalty. That's Karen Smith. She is one of the dumbest girls you will ever meet. I'm kind of psychic. Really? It's like I have ESPN or something. Gretchen Wieners. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. And evil takes a human form in Regina George. She knows everything about everyone. That's why her hair is so big. It's full of secrets. We want to invite you to have lunch with us. Regina seems sweet. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. Your house is really nice. I know, right? Being with the plastics was like leaving the actual world and entering girl world. Have you seen any guys that you think are cute yet? There's this guy in my calculus class. His name's Aaron Samuels. <gasps> no, no. That's Regina's ex-boyfriend. Ex-boyfriends are off limits. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. Gretchen told me that you like Aaron Samuels. I could talk to him for you if you want. Really? You would do that? You're so hot. Why would she do that? She's a life ruiner. I knew how this would be settled in the animal world. But this was girl world. All the fighting had to be sneaky. I want to lose three pounds. They're these nutrition bars my mom uses to lose weight. It won't close. It's a five. You could try Sears. Uh -uh. Why are you eating a Caltein bar? What? They make you gain weight like crazy. Who does she think she is? I, like, invented her. I'm sorry I laughed at you. I'm sorry I called you fat. I'm sorry that people are so jealous of me, but I can't help it that I'm popular. It's pretty common for novels to be adapted into narrative dramas, or for nonfiction books to be adapted into documentaries. It's rarer to see a nonfiction book adapted into a drama, but it happens from time to time with pretty interesting results, like Susan Orlean's book The Orchid Thief, about the illicit trade in rare flowers becoming the meta-narrative Hollywood comedy adaptation or Herbert Ashbery's 1928 history of New York's underworld becoming Martin Scorsese's outsized period drama Gangs of New York. And then there's Mean Girls, an all-star teen comedy in the Heathers mode, inspired by the sociological study and self-help guide Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping your daughter survive cliques, gossip, boyfriends, and other realities of adolescence. When parenting educator Rosalind Wiseman wrote the book in 2002, she probably wasn't thinking in terms of what it would look like as a snarky film drama, with Rachel McAdams swanning around making catty comments about her schoolmates behind their backs. But then comedian Tina Fey happened to read the book, and she saw an opportunity to address some of her own high school behavior in a movie that would both find its humor in the extremes of student bullying and take a principled stand against it. I was the mean girl. I admit it openly, Fey said in an interview with Netta Porte in 2015. That was a disease that had to be conquered. It's another coping mechanism. It's a bad coping mechanism. But when you feel less than, in high school, everyone feels less than everyone else for different reasons, in your mind, it's a way of leveling the playing field. Though, of course, it's not. Saying something terrible about someone else does not actually level the playing field. If I meet a girl of 14 or 15 today who is that kind of girl, I am secretly, in my body, afraid, even though I'm 45. Tina Fey's script for Mean Girls, which she enlisted her Saturday Night Live boss Lorne Michaels to produce, acknowledges all of that. The insecurity that leads to bullying, the way even adults can feel victimized by teenagers' amoral brutality, the message that making fun of someone else's weakness doesn't actually make you any stronger. But the film is also brutally funny about what that bullying looks like. It makes fun of the shallowness, dimness, and self-absorption of bullies like high school queen bees Regina, Gretchen, and Karen, played respectively by Rachel McAdams, Lacey Chabert, and Amanda Seyfried. But it also takes some pleasure in their one-liners and their unflappability. And it's not much kinder to the teenagers who are jealous of them, like best friends Janice and Damien, played by Lizzie Kaplan and Daniel Frenzes, or to the people who fall under their spell, like Katie, a homeschool kid played by Lindsay Lohan during the American Sweetheart phase of her career. 
When Katie enters high school for the first time, Janice and Damien help her navigate through the cliques and clans that determine high school social standing, and they claim her as one of their own. But when Regina and her group, the Plastics, take an interest in Katie, Janice sets Katie up as a spy in their midst to report on them and sabotage them. The plan falls apart a bit when Katie develops a crush on Regina's ex-boyfriend Aaron Samuels, and ends up with both a personal stake in the game and with reasons to emulate Regina as much as to destroy her. But while all of this may play out a little like a teenage version of Dangerous Liaisons by way of Heathers, it comes down to a relatively happy ending with a big morality lesson at the end. And that could be because of Tina Fey's own personal experience in the jungles of what she calls girl world, where young women attack each other with sweet smiles and kind words and hide all of their ugly reactions behind closed doors. Fey has been one of those girls, and she came out alive on the other side. She's pretty sympathetic to the insecurity they're feeling, to the short-sightedness and shallowness of youth, and to the pleasure of getting in a really good jab against an enemy. They're a fake friend. Or a frenemy. Whichever can be hard to tell the difference. And Mean Girls considers why that is, why it's harder for teenage girls to be honest about their disagreements, and how they deal with their own emotional vulnerability. It's a film that plays as funny because it's bright, heightened, and exaggerated. But it also plays as fundamentally real because it comes from a place of familiarity and honesty as well. Oh my god, I love your bracelet. Where did you get it? Oh, my mom made it for me. It's adorable. It's so fetch. What is fetch? Oh, it's like slang. England. So if you're from Africa, why are you white? Oh my god, Karen, you can't just ask people why they're white. Okay, guys, Mean Girls. Is it or is it not totally fetch? Jennifer, you should start this. <laughs> oh, why should I start this? Because <laughs> I, All right, well, that's actually a good way for me to say, like, I, I feel like I don't like this movie enough. Like, I feel like this is a movie that people assume I like a lot, and I like it fine. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I've actually, this is only my second or third time seeing it, but it's, like, just such a, like, cultural object at this point. I feel like I know it very well. But I I didn't really go back to revisit this film a whole lot. I remember liking it when I saw it in the theater, but just the third act not working for me for a lot of reasons. I I remember Regina getting hit by a bus being like one of the first moments in a film like I remember actively hating like I hate I hate that hit by a bus thing and like going back and watching it this time I notice how it's like kind of seated throughout the film a little more but I still like just I don't like that device at all and I feel this movie maybe didn't originate it but I think probably popularized the sudden the the deus ex machina yeah yeah but 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 specifically someone getting like hit by a bus out of nowhere is something i feel i see way too often and there's never any explanation for why a bus is doing 60 miles an hour full of crowd full through a crowd of students yeah like that's kind of what i was saying about how it seeds like like you see that bus speeding by a couple times i really wish there was a line of dialogue of someone being like why is that bus driving so fast (laughs) in a school zone not not since pet cemetery has has a vehicular accident been set up so uh, uh so obviously Yeah. Final destination. Yeah. There's a lot of creamed by a bus in that series. True. <laughs> but back to Mean Girls. I mean, I like a lot about Mean Girls, and there's a lot about it that I still find funny this day. I think the first like two thirds, basically up until the the burn book is is released, I think is just incredibly smart and fun satire, you know, high school satire. And when I did see this, I was only a few years out of high school and close enough to definitely 
recognize in it and, and relate to it in a way. I'm still not really a fan of how it resolves for a variety of reasons. The, you know, the trust fall exercise in the gym just never really works for me. But, you know, I, I love Rachel McAdams in this. I, I mean, that I don't think it's too surprising to say that this is probably the moment Rachel, everyone got Rachel McAdams, you, you know, and um, her performance still totally holds up. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's totally fetch, but <laughs> irregardless, it is. Is it, is it fetch nice. adjacent? Yes, it's fetch adjacent. Um, irregardless, let's, let's break it out. Um, so um, I think my impression in, at the time and really now is that it was, uh, you know, Heather's for the masses that had taken something that uh, a film that was really edgy and dangerous and weird and took a lot of those edges off and made something that's a little more maybe more relatable but also more palatable and less distinctive and brought in the writer's brother to direct it uh mark waters yeah. instead of daniel yes <laughs> yeah. so i i was never really all that i you know the idea of these lunch table clicks is just so it's such a cliche mm-hmm. but it, you know at that point it wasn't now it certainly is what i like about the film is is just its comic zippiness which is which is just tina fey just running one-liners you know one after another there's a lot of a lot of laughs in this film, a lot of good performances, and those are the things that really kind of keep the film going for me more than any particular insight into teenage life. I don't, I don't, I think this film's a little bit shallow in that, in that respect. There's a, there's a lot of proto Thirty Rock stuff with Amy Poehler's character, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and oh, it would be proto Tim Meadows and things. I, I think about this movie. I think it's fetch enough for a while. <laughs> I, I don't want to be the first one to kind of, kind of like you know lay out criticisms of it, but I think the first two thirds are really quite good and then the film stops cold for the writer to deliver a lecture about what the film's about and then the rest of the movie is just an illustration of why she was right and it just comes off as just very you know it comes off as very preachy and very just sort of uh instructional at that point you know and and i I guess it's sort of like making the medicine go down with a lot of comedic sugar but it it left a very medicinal master taste to me (laughs) when i first saw it and 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 now as well I mean, that I think is probably like I haven't read the Queen Bee's book, but given that the Queen Bee's book is specifically an instruction manual for how to help your child through a bullying environment in high school, I suspect that uh, that's where some of that is coming from. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you cannot follow this if, if you're adapting that and you earnestly want to impart some, you know, bring its lessons to the screen, you can't take this film to the dark conclusions. The story kind of feels like it wants to go to, yeah. like the, sort of the Heather's like territory. You got to steal, steer away from that. But I think it's, you know, maybe it's, it's just because I'm, I'm an awful person that want to, wants to see the darker <laughs> ending, but I feel like it's a lesser film for that. It reminds me of uh, like a lighter, preachier version of election. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. a, a version of election that doesn't quite have the courage of co- its convictions. It also reminds me of a less dark, uh, like as you say, Heather's for the masses. Mm-hmm. I feel like its heart is in the right place in a way that like enough of this is either relatable or just entertaining because it's so fleet, because it moved along so quickly uh, that I, I, I mostly want to give it a pass, I guess. It doesn't speak to me in any kind of uh, deep emotional way and it's not going to like break any break any bridges burn any barriers uh i'm just in a giant that's a gretchen wieners esque uh, i'm just in a giant like metaphor mixing kick uh ever since ever since last week and our sharpened bullets sharpened bullets uh which i probably should have called out on our social media and and never did but anyway people sharpen bullets all the time (laughs) 
They make I'm, them. They make them pointier. I'm just gonna let that one go by. Um, <laughs> I've seen the house, house that Jack built way too recently to talk about sharpened bullets. Oh my gosh. Anyway, well, my point is just like I almost feel like I feel more positively about this movie than what I'm hearing in this room, without feeling any great need to defend it. Yeah, it's such a popular movie. Like it kind of defends itself. Yeah, like that's kind of what I mean. But like I feel like I'm supposed to like it more. Like I do like this movie. You know, I I, I was very excited to go back and watch it and like and re experience it but i think the extent to which it has become sort of a like i said a cultural object and you know october 3rd is mean girls day and wednesdays we were pink and like just all these things that are just like part of the the language of the internet now now there's a musical now too (laughs) there's a musical there is a sequel so wild how these things kind of make their way through the culture movies uh that i would would have dismissed or thought were no big deal at the time yeah become these touchstones like 10 or 15 years later right, so kind, I think kind of a big deal at the time though i thought it was a hit yeah it was, it was, was a hit, hit. but, 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 I, mean, but like, i think i think know. it's been elevated to a certain like classic status that it doesn't necessarily as a whole warrant but the pieces of it that have kind of stuck in the cultural consciousness i think speak to there being something like at the heart of this movie that does resonate and is still a a pleasure to go back to today. I think with comedies in particular, there's just a, there's a rolling phenomenon of if you watch a comedy at a certain time of your life and just kind of key into it, it becomes part of your childhood and it becomes something that just like echoes further and further through your consciousness. And you walk into adulthood with just like this as a cultural artifact. I can easily see seeing this at the right time of life to hugely identify with somebody in it. Mm-hmm. Like whatever side that is, like whether you're you're kind of getting the wish fulfillment, like wouldn't it be fun to be this pretty and, and popular or wouldn't it be fun to take down the people who are pretty and popular? I could see people who got it at the right time of life, like really hanging on to this movie. And kind of my pet theory with all high school stories is that they are made for people who are about to go into high school. Because like I think of the quintessential high school movie for me, which I frequently cite as my favorite movie, which is Clueless. Mm-hmm. And like that's a movie I saw when I was 13. Yeah, 13. And similarly, I think a lot of the people who today like really, really adore Mean Girls are just a few years younger than me and would have been like about to go into high school. So I think watching high school stories as someone who is either in high school or where high school is like way in the rear view, you aren't able to connect to it the way you are when high school is still this thing in your future. That's an interesting point because I mean, because that that would have held true for me age wise with uh, the John Hughes films that were coming out like 16 Candles and Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. These would all have been middle school experiences rather than high school experiences. Then I look at those today and like I'm thinking, like, I, I, <laughs> they, they, he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> um, so um, that's not what it's like to be a teenager. What, what, was, a, what was this middle-aged man thinking? That, these are these are excerpts from a controversial future, future episode of <laughs> the Picture <laughs> Show. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I mean, and really, just in terms of just the films status i mean if you if you had told me at the time that i would have a podcast in the future you told me what a podcast was and then you said what i'd have we i'd be on a podcast in the future that compared a classic film uh to a a new film and mean girls was going to be the classic film i would be i would have been surprised to hear that i mean if you told me all of those things back in 2002 i would ask you for lottery ticket numbers (laughs) would 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 you call this a cult classic mr new cult canon no it's too 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 much of a mainstream hit hit. Mm. too much of a mainstream hit but but it's there are different modes of thought i mean like the the original cult movies book has like the wizard of oz in it yeah yeah so there are 
occasions where where a popular favorite has been adopted and embraced and kind of uh, uh, obsessed about uh, more than just kind of a hidden gem. So you can you could make the argument, I suppose, but uh, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> unless I really needed a film. <laughs> at, at, at the end of my column, there it was like, oh boy, I'm really digging deep. Um, but let me ask you all this, uh, Genevieve. And Tasha, you 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 were teenagers once uh, in high school. <laughs> just I mean, once, just only once. once. Like, what, does this film ring true to you anthropologically uh, in any way? To a certain extent. One thing that I found interesting watching it now is um, how cell phones are like barely present and just because like this movie is like right at the cusp I think before camera phones and everything just like totally changed how teens bully each other you know, you know like oh obviously gosh. like you know cell phones were around and were used but they just were used as mostly phones at this point and they're really not present in Mean Girls at all and that was also true of my high school experience so I feel like this is like the same era of, of high school bullying or meanness that I came up in, you know, right before it like radically changed into a, a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's not really my personal experience. I also went to like a massive high school that had 5,000 kids in it. So like clicks weren't really even an option, you know, like you didn't, or, you know, you knew a fairly small percentage of the people you went to school with. So Mean Girls, I feel is tapping into something I recognize more from high school movies than from my own high school experience. Um, at least in sort of the anthropological sense. In terms of like how girls relate to each other, I do feel there is something true at the center of that, particularly within a certain age. Again, I think it's maybe in something that happens a little earlier than high school, at least in my own experience, hmm. but... You know, plenty of cruelty in high school. Sure, sure. But I don't know. I mean, I went to a super, super tiny high school where clicks also were not an option. Mm -hmm. So there are there's also a lot here that I can't entirely relate to. And part of that is just because so much of this movie is from the center. It's from ground zero in the like the coolest kids in school. Like and there was there was no point where I was going to pass for Rachel McAdams. There was no point where I had hair like that or lived in a giant mansion and like, you know, had my own Maserati to drive around in. So this movie feels much more to me, at least like a fantasy of what it would be like to be centered in that world, like what it would be like to have Mm -hmm. the school revolved around you and to be kind of fielding like that level of of jealousy and competition and attack like I was much more you know the the kids that are marginal in that in the story the kid in the wheelchair and (laughs) fat girl that calls Regina fat ass at one point like that was that was much more likely to be me so I'm in the same boat as sort of recognizing some of this stuff but recognizing it more from like cultural artifacts about the artificiality of high school like it feels familiar because it feels familiar from from things like Heather's as opposed to being like, oh, yeah. I mean, the insincerity of teenage girls, I think, is the main thing that this captures, because that that particular style of bullying where you're super nice to somebody and then you laugh because they believe that you were being nice or because they don't have an answer to you being super mm-hmm. nice. That is authentically real. Mm. But the rest of it is it's a heightened comedic version of absolutely everything. There's another high school fantasy at work here, which is that of the new girl of coming into a school for the first time. And in Katie's case, like being embraced, the plastics take notice of her because she's really pretty, you know, and I I think we're supposed to believe that's authentic, but also maybe coming from a place of being threatened. (laughs) Um, You you absorb and neutralize the threat, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I mean, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about, you know, high school movies maybe being for people who 
haven't been through high school yet like I think the fantasy of being like the new girl who you know becomes a queen bee is really appealing to someone who is about to enter a new school ecosystem (laughs) you you know and not just any new girl but uh, the new girl with the wildly exotic past Mm -hmm. that again is maybe not a fantasy that I had so much but that I've seen reflected back at me from like so many graphic novels about being this age Mm -hmm. just that idea of like we all grew up in this area together we've known each other since kindergarten like People are still calling me by the name that I had in third grade. Why can't I just like go away for five years and then come back as a completely new person with a new look and a cool new backstory? Like that fantasy, I think, is the movie's kind of playing into here. Let me ask you guys this. The movie, I think, plays differently in this environment for a lot of reasons, one of which is just high school bullying. As you say, it's completely different because of cell phones. It's also just completely different because these days we associate it with things like school shootings or, you know, with relentless Facebook bullying or Instagram bullying with uh, just all sorts of different things that didn't exist sociologically or technologically back then. But it also plays really differently because we know all of these people at this point you know i mean the actors yeah all of the actors amy poehler's character in particular i remember that that character (laughs) amy poehler is not the person i thought you were going first in terms of people who have changed since oh not 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 specifically that she's changed but that our our perspective on her has changed like at the time to me that that character was like what is she doing in this movie she contributes in no way to the story Mm -hmm. these days it's like hey it's amy poehler and she's doing a bit this is fun and it she still doesn't contribute anything to the story but but to me it's enjoyable to see her here well she seems like i don't know i I actually buy that as a more real realistic character than some of the others uh, like the cool mom who's uh (laughs) is way too accommodating and wants to fit in with the the girls (laughs) as we're recording this it's just a week or so after ariana grande released a music video for the song thank you next which uh recreates a bunch of uh kind of teen movies including me girls and uh the amy poehler character is played briefly by chris jenner which is maybe just the most inspired (laughs) bit of casting in in terms of amy poehler's character and what the 2018 analog of that would be and like how she works in the mean girls universe it's absolutely chris jenner Uh, that is wow that is clever yeah (laughs) so i'm wondering like what else just plays differently for you either because we live in a different time or you know because you have associations with these actors at this point the elephant in the room is that Lindsay lohan is a promising (laughs) young actress and she's really good in this movie and and you know she she looks bright and full of life and she's you know a great comedic performer and it just didn't it didn't work out you know i i held out hope for Lindsay lohan for a long time like she was you know top of my list of people i'm rooting for i i still love her and the freaky friday remake i think that movie is yeah, actually she's great in that. yeah so going back to this point where she still like had all that promise it's it's a little sad but it's also i think nice to be reminded that there was something there rachel mcadams i kind of called her out like she's she's the star of this for me with apologies to Lindsay lohan but um it's also a reminder that and people were talking about this uh this year with game night that rachel mcadams needs more comedic roles it's, it's really weird that she is so rarely cast in comedies because she's so good here and it's like this was right after the notebook so it was like these two different kinds of roles in like two different ways that her career could have gone and it, it went a little more in the the notebook romantic lead direction you know yeah, but, her performances became in dramas tend to be a lot more self-effacing i, I think yeah. when she's out there and being really aggressive she can be very funny and start striking i mean mm-hmm. like she is in game night with the uh, pulp fiction moment is just so it was one of my favorite <laughs> 
favorite things to happen in movies this year where she imitates Amanda Plummer in that. And then uh, has she ever hosted Saturday Night Live? With the SNL connection here, like it seems like she should have, but I can't. Yeah, she think would, she'd be great. She really would. I don't think so. I'm on her Wikipedia page down and you know, see a reference to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you guys are all uh, consulting the internet, I'll also kind of give a shout. I'm going to start a petition. Amanda Seyfried, <laughs> who just... this was her first movie. Uh, this this was her first film, and she has kind of a, a comedic nothing of a role that I feel like was maybe cloned a little bit too much for Brittany in Glee. Uh, hmm. That just the person that like random crazy dumb stuff comes out of, and she doesn't have an arc. Uh, she doesn't have much of a character. We've seen her in so many movies since then, yeah. like some of which uh, have been a lot more demanding. And it's just sort of interesting here to see her playing like a really one note. Like my only job is to sit here with my mouth open and my my eyes unfocused. Uh, it's she's it's a little very interesting. Funny in it, <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. I was gonna say she's great great yeah, at it though. It's a, she it's she, a good, she does a good on focus. It's a good it's a it's a good role. You, you don't see first reformed coming out of this performance. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big love or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like no. she, definitely a uh, a much more varied career uh, grew out of this role. But uh, I think she's in the limited role she has. She's good in the and uh, and. The whole dynamic makes sense, you know, it makes sense that each of the other two girls play around Regina that makes sense comedically and also just in terms of the way a tribe like that would be organized. It makes sense that they play the roles they do there. I like that performance a lot. I also actually really enjoy Tim Meadows. Like it's <laughs> it's a small role. There's not a ton to it. Uh, but he just he gets off some pretty killer lines and moments. That business where he's just like he he's inviting everybody to come forward with their their moments and the first person to speak starts talking about tampons and he's like yeah i can't do this somebody else somebody else tackle it the moment where he uh where tina fey asks like how many people here feel personally victimized by regina yeah. george and he very slowly shameless shamefully raises his hand towards the end you're not getting nearly as much comic businesses you'd like um you know when she gets to go go on stage and give her big speech but you do get it from tim meadows it's like well you really don't have to nobody's expecting <laughs> you to go yeah. there and make a speech you know you really, oh i do love that yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I think it gives it gives gives you uh, some laughs where um the movie really desperately needs them yeah i'm speaking of uh, tim meadows character here i'm wondering what you guys think of the adults in the film I mean, typically movies made, like, as you say, for, for preteens, for kids like looking at high school as a fantasy, like operate in this sphere where all adults are clueless and dumb. And here you have a set of adults who seem to be fairly human and, and pretty engaged with what everybody's thinking and feeling. They're kind of helpless in the wake of all of the things driving teenagers, but they like they seem well intentioned at least. I think it helps that Tina Fey is really funny. Uh, that they're also that character could come off as really well. I think she does come off as preachy, but come off as too preachy, you know, in a really distracting way instead of a semi-distracting yeah. way. And, and she's sort of a self-effacing presence. I mean, obviously Tina Fey wrote it, so she wrote her character some some details that you know maybe lends a little dimension to that character like that she works at a tgi friday's <laughs> restaurant you know and there's there's a definitely sort of a a sadness you know applied to that character that again sort of counteracts the potential preachiness of a teacher character in a movie like this did you guys watch the deleted scenes no Mm-mm. there's a deleted scene that i think i think it's really key that it was deleted where like after the mathletes win and she's congratulating them she says something to the effect of like you know thank you guys so much for reminding me like her character is 
is divorced and not seeing anybody and, mm-hmm. and unhappy and lonely. And she says something to the effect of, you know, thank you for reminding me that not everything I touch turns to crap. And then she gets in her car and like the hood promptly pops off and steam pours out of it. <laughs> and she's like, can I have a ride? And it's a joke that just completely deflates their victory and puts the focus back on her. And it's a very slapstick moment. And cutting it seems like kind of an acknowledgement that there's maybe a little too much like Tina Fey cuteness and pathos in the movie. Mm. Uh, And I I think it's actually an important focusing thing. Yeah. Though I I compare this to the adults in Clueless who get probably less screen time, but make to me a bigger impression. Maybe Dan Dan Hedaya or uh, (laughs) Wallace Shawn. And uh, who's the, I don't know who plays his love interest in that. Uh, I think those are those are richer characters. I mean, certainly the relationship between the father and daughter is much stronger than than the relationship between Katie and her parents, played by talented yeah. people by Neil Flynn and Anna Gasteyer. I love Dan Hedaya in that movie. I know it's not a Clueless <laughs> podcast, but what, a, what, a, what an awesome relationship! Guys, what are we going to do a Clueless <laughs> podcast? <laughs> Just all Clueless all the time. I mean, we did cover Clueless in, yeah. on this podcast. No, no, we didn't, no, no it was a movie, movie of the week. We dissolve. did cover Clueless as a movie of the week. Yeah. The dissolve. We did. Yeah. Big time. It was uh, It was a great week. What a publication. <laughs> what a great publication. <laughs> so here's the thing. As opposed to Heather's, like the plastics here kind of seem pretty not dangerous to me. Like Regina is full of herself, but... She's not as destructive as the the mean girls in other mean girls movies, effectively. And like Gretchen is her own worst enemy. She can't stop sabotaging herself. She's so visibly insecure. And Karen is just so dumb. I'm curious kind of what you make of the, the competition between them and Katie. Like it feels a little like shooting fish in a barrel. Is is there a bad guy here? Like how bad are the plastics in this movie? I mean, I think their their badness is like a sort of an insinuating one. Like I mean Regina George in particular. Like we were we were doing it at the big at the opening of this of this podcast with the little back and forth you wrote for us. You, you know, like it's it's very just like Shh, under- don't let them behind the curtain. God. <laughs> Sorry. Boo you whore. I, yeah, boo you whore to you too. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just love that so much. It makes no sense. Yeah. Actually, just going back real quick to the Tina Fey character and the, you know, little bit of preachiness of the movie as a whole um, through that character. Like, I do really like the point made of you have to stop calling each other sluts and whores because it makes it okay for men to call you that too. Like, I specifically remember around that era, like, women were throwing those words around as like terms of endearment more so than, than they do today. It still happens a little bit, but I think it's like not quite as fast fashionable as it was back then and i i think that mean girls may have actually been a part a part of the the shift away from that but i do really like that and yet the next picture show is bringing you back yeah i know we're, <laughs> we're, we're gonna get the ex- explicit tag it's okay it's okay i can say it uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's fine when i say it actually um, that the, the it's fine when i say it kind of brings up something for me that there there are little bits and pieces you of- can't just ask people why they're white <laughs> That's that's one of them. Uh, the other thing is the repeated use of the word retarded. Mm-hmm. I mean, Regi- Regina keeps saying, oh, my God, that's retarded. And it plays as though like it's meant to be harsh and declarative about her character like it did back then. These days, every time she said it, I, just, I'd like, I flinched so hard. It's like the language of cruelty of this movie is still from another era. And mm-hmm. some of it feels way harsher today to me. Yeah. But... To go back to the question of like how mean they are, I mean like it's they're they're making other 
people feel bad about themselves, you know, and, and they're doing it in an underhanded way. And I think like, yes, maybe it's not on the level of like physical violence or maybe it's not quite as traumatic, but I think it like a, that is damaging in a more insinuating way to teenagers' self-esteem, like that sort of behavior. But, but then again, as this movie attempts to say, like it's also a universal behavior. It's not necessarily exclusive to the plastics. Like that's a point the movie is making. Like everyone kind of does this to a certain extent. The plastics are just on such a higher social level that they are able to do it to everyone. So maybe that's where the evilness comes from. I think the movie takes on an interesting balance, though, in like implicating everybody else in in creating the environment, not just the environment of, of gossip and backbiting and undermining and fake friending, but in the the way that people emulate Regina, like to me, so much of this movie comes down to the scene where Janice cuts the boobs out of one of Regina's shirts <laughs> in the in the gym locker room. Mm-hmm. Regina shrugs it off, and the next day or week, it's unclear. Everybody's wearing yeah. shirts with the with the breasts cut out because they're all emulating her. That strikes me as actually almost a, a positive statement about Regina. Like yeah. she just somebody bullies her and she just rolls with it. Whereas everybody else in the school is trying so hard to be her uh, that they emulate this like ridiculous looking thing and like none of them have personalities of their own. That to me says a lot more about Tina Fey's sympathy with Regina George types than it does necessarily about how awful they are. And that kind of cruelty sort of allows her to be self-possessed and confident in a way that her the people under her cannot be, right? I guess the phrase uh, we have um, from the sporting world is the, the best defense is a good offense. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the way things work with a character like Regina George, that if you control a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things and you're aggressive and you're making people feel bad about themselves or you have these petty dictates like what you can wear a certain day, what you're not allowed to wear those acts of aggression allow you to have power and and comfort and self-possession and confidence that you wouldn't have otherwise. God, Scott, we had like a light, funny, fast-moving, fun podcast going along, (laughs) and then you had to wrap it up by getting all preachy and telling us what the theme of the podcast was and giving us the moral. Fine, we'll do it your way. We'll have more to say about Mean Girls next week when we compare it to The Favorite. But first, a break and some feedback. It's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Scott, we got some feedback on our Lost Films episode pairing up Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind with Shirkers. This one actually came in as a Facebook comment, but we thought it was an interesting take. Would you mind reading this? Sure. Fox Bell writes, Although there are many intentional similarities to Welles' life in the Hannaford character, I think focusing on them deflects attention away from the many ways in which Hannaford is quite unlike Wells, and in that sense much more of a character in the tradition of monstrous men in Wells' films. He's quite similar to Mr. Arkadin, in the sense that he's a booze-swilling thug who has patches of disarming eloquence. I believe Hannaford is even described identically to Arkadin as quote-unquote the ogre. There's also similarities to Clay in the immortal story, whose attempts to control a story of two young lovers proves fatal. And, of course, there's the similarities between the relationships of Hannaford and his young actor and Charles Kane and Jed Leland, where a relationship that may or may not have been intimate and unspoken sputters out as a professional portrayal. Another way we see Wells playing it both ways is in his treatment of the Pauline Kale character. If this was Wells' revenge on Kale, 
then it is a very strange one because she's the only person at the party who is consistently correct in her observations. She's the one who correctly surmises that the uncast role in Hannaford's film is an obvious analog for himself, setting us up for the quote-unquote voice of God scene on the set where his actor walks out. Hannaford also hits her, one of the worst moments in the film, and action Wells is never portrayed positively in any of his films. If Hannaford is Wells and Susan Strasberg is Kale, then this hardly seems like an endorsement by Wells of his own character, something I don't think he intended. Rather, I think these parallels are intended as much to beguile and confuse as be legitimately revelatory. Wells is playing with his own myth, as he always did. I think there's a ton to unpack in there, but kind of the central part of it uh, for me is, like, Wells denied that this character was inspired by himself. I think that the parallels we're seeing may be unintentional, that they may emerge from writing what you know and ending up with a kind of a portrait of himself that he maybe didn't intend, which may explain why he does portray somebody with so many parallels to him in such a negative manner. That said, the moment with the Pauline Kale character and him slapping her, to me, was not questioning her truth. It was uh, it was trying to shut up her truth. I, I think it's entirely possible that he is portraying her as someone who was insightful and incisive and often accurate. But just because somebody is right doesn't necessarily mean that you like it, that you like hearing it, that you like being confronted with it, especially in such an ugly and abrasive and confrontational way as, as she brings these things across. It's possible that part of what he's reacting to, what, what Hannaford is reacting to, is the way she expresses it, both the way she outs him publicly uh, and just her pretty extreme nastiness about it. I mean, it's possible that in some ways Wells was reacting to things Kale said about him that he maybe thought were true, but still didn't want to hear. Yeah, I was just kind of looking up the timing on this because Pauline Kale's book about Citizen Kane called Raising Kane uh, for it was uh, written in 1971. When did, the, when did shooting begin on the other side of the wind? 71, I believe. Right, yeah. right around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it was a book Wells fans and presumably Wells were, were not happy about at all because it threw a lot of credit away from him and to the, to the writer. So I don't know if there's, there was some um, animosity that was sort of brewing that, was, that kind of came out, came spilling out on the other side of the wind. But I think the, the writer's point is a good one in that, you know, the, the way Wells has portrayed himself or versions of himself on screen over the years is complex and not necessarily a one-to-one. And I certainly take respect the, the, the scholarship of our listener. This person has, has, has gone pretty deep into Wells' filmography, so uh, I, I have to respect and, and kind of defer to that. All I'd add is that, that at least it's not uh, the Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool, which I recently watched, in which a character obviously um, based on Pauline Kale is brutally murdered on screen in graphic detail. So <laughs> the Deadpool? Yeah. yeah not, not a good movie. I, there's, there's just no, there's no reason for filmmakers, I'm looking at you, M. Night Shyamalan, to stick film critics into movies just, just in order to murder them horribly. Come on. There was a kale. There was a kale character, of course, in Willow as well. So mm-hmm. she really, you know, made a lot of dudes mad. <laughs> Which, uh, good for her, I guess. We could drop in another letter here, but uh, a lot of the feedback letters we've got right now are really, really long, and we're going to need a little time to contend with, uh, probably on Facebook. And uh, we're talking about potentially doing a feedback episode. So let's take a moment instead here to consider uh, some of the other films we considered pairing with The Favorite, which is something that listeners have asked us to do from time to time. We This was one of the ones we went around on a bit. We discussed this a lot. One of the the, the big ones is all about Eve, you know, but which particularly relationship between 
Rachel Weitz and Emma Stone in The Favorite is it mirrors the relationship between Betty Davis and Ann Baxter in that film. So that was that was a big one in terms of just story. But there are other one films stylistically that were of interest to us as well. Yeah, Peter Greenaway's The Draftman's Contract was a film that I believe Lanthimos has actually cited as mm-hmm. an inspiration and certainly visually and tonally, like there's just, there's no missing the closeness between them, the parallels. It doesn't have the plot mechanics, but it does have kind of the sense of that era of like the the costumes and the wigs. And it certainly has the sense of malice and uh, of a, a, an outsider coming in and people just, brutally victimizing each other. Unfortunately, Peter Greenaway's stuff can be really hard to find. And the draftsman's contract, I think it came down to only available like for purchase on disc or some such. All that stuff was on Filmstruck. So another reason to lament the end of Filmstruck. But, but I, and a lot of Greenaway stuff you cannot find anywhere. The Cook Thief for you uh, really is really hard. But, but uh, draftsman contract is on Fandor. Uh, yes, that, another which, another fine service. There we yes. go. We, I mean, like services like uh, Filmstruck, Movie, Fandor. Like, obviously, we like for people to use those services. We like to encourage that. We don't necessarily want to do films where you have to have a subscription to one specific service well, in and, order to yeah. listen. And I think yeah. with that one, it, like it, it was on Fandor, but it was also like really hard to get a physical copy. Like, like it's out of print. So, like, we didn't want a movie that, like, if you didn't have Fandor, there was no other way for you to see it like you know um, that one came down to a practicality if you want to see prospero's books you can buy it on amazon for like 30 plus dollars yeah a lot of that honestly there were there were times that like i I did keep thinking of prospero's books while watching the favorite and i kept being surprised that there wasn't text scrolling by on the screen it's crazy like i mean a movie like cook thief was an absolute sensation at in art houses i mean people were that was incredibly controversial at the time i mean people were i know i was very anxious to to run out and see it and talk about it with my friends it was like a a real thing and for for a movie like that striking to be so difficult to to see now it's a little bit depressing that one you can find but other greenaway stuff i mean you can find cook thief yeah that one Mm -hmm. you can track down but but good luck anything else yeah i didn't think belly of an architect set of two knots yeah some of those are really fun too um the other one i was thinking of to watching uh, the favorite would have been a movie like Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is the, that um, Ealing comedy about mm-hmm. about uh, where uh, Alec Guinness plays someone who's like nine steps removed from the throne and kind of work his way up the ladder in a, in a diabolical way. So that, while, while playing all of the people that he's playing, bumping right, off to get there, exactly, exactly, really funny and and would have been kind of a fun pairing as well. So there's a lot of movies that are suggested by the the favorite which is so, someone on Twitter also mentioned Dangerous Liaisons. Oh, that was certainly. Be great. And, I, and, and uh, I, I just watched that. That was my last film struck movie is watching Wait, which Liaisons. which version did you just the, watch? The the, the, the Freers and it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen it in 25 years and it holds up great, I think. Or we um, could do it with Cruel Intentions, another modern <laughs> I mean, Cruel modern Intentions classic. Cruel Intentions would have felt a little like doing uh, mean, mean Girls, Girls in yeah. and of itself. And uh, Lanthimos has also cited films like Possession and Cries and Whispers. There were a lot of options in yeah. this one. I, I think, honestly, we came down to it because Genevieve was like, super enthused oh. which is why i'm a little surprised that you're like yeah yeah but it's oh no I, think, I think it was more just like oh that would be fun like when it when it was like it, i thought it would be fun it was fun we I had could, fun guys i could right? see pairing it with cries and whispers being less fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> dennis price actually plays the murderous character in kind hearts and coordinates not not alec guinness 
Oh, yeah. is it? Oh, okay. It was not Alex. Hmm. Alex Guinness plays everybody else. Oh, you're right. Okay. Uh, Keith, Keith is back fact checking us <laughs> after he disappeared for the week in which he got fact checked. What? <laughs> I didn't listen to that episode yet. What, what, what happened? Technically, that was still my error. Keith was the but one he that led fed you me there. the error. Yeah. Like he led me, he led me down the primrose path, but I followed willingly. So, and I was the one talking about uh, how much I love John Houston for his Gandalf. So, uh, like allowing myself to be misled is way more on me than Keith. And, and since I hosted the show, I really got to rub rub it in Tasha's air. I got to really kind of get a lot out of that. Wait a minute, Keith, were you secretly undermining me to tumble me from my spot as the the queen bee of this podcast? Oh, uh, now now it all comes together. You just wait until you see how I edit all this together. <laughs> it's, it's just going to be you saying boo, you whore, at yeah. me, like for one straight hour. Yep. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll jump back to the past to look at more women battling for social advantage in Yorgos Lanthimos's period piece, The Favorite. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... Remember, don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it, okay? Now we're going to mail you all some rubbers. She